Good evening, brothers and sisters. Welcome back, and I'm glad to be back. I just want to reiterate some of the things that were just said. Um, a very sweet selection of songs, uh, things that I think went along with, and I assume were well thought out. Some of the things that we spoke about this morning are growing in understanding. And like we sung in the first hymn, Oh, make me understand it. It's something that is, again, a work of God, by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and the inner man. And so we'll see in Ephesians that Paul begins with a prayer in this section, starting in chapter 1, and then the section closes with a prayer uh, at the end of chapter 3, where, again, Paul is going to God, seeking the Spirit of God, in order to reveal the word of God. I mean, we can't understand it apart from him, right? So, oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. And then some of the other things we talked about this morning a little bit regarding a growing in the knowing of him. And there's nothing like it. I mean, again, that's what the Apostle Paul said. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's something better than all of the things of earth. And we sang about none but Christ can satisfy. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. What a picture. Even as I stooped to drink. We're not hymnologists, you know, but sometimes it's good to think about the things we're singing, like we just mentioned. Even as I stooped to drink. I mean, isn't that like the world? Isn't that like where we were before Christ, bending like, like a dog, just give me something? And even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. One popular preacher said, The lowest point of depression is when one has experienced that which he thought would bring ultimate joy, and it has let him down. Certainly the trials of life can bring the world to their knees. But there's a sense in which the worldly pleasures can even more so reveal the emptiness, the lostness of the world. Certainly when, when, when the world goes through hard times, they have no answers. But, but there's, in a sense, a carrot still dangling out there. But when they have experienced, when you and I, before the Lord, experience, experience that which we thought would bring joy, ultimate joy, and it let us down. What a point of low depression. None but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lasting joy. The world has nothing that's lasting. Only at best fleeting temporal pleasure. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's lasting joy. What a tremendous thought. And then, of course, as we grow in our knowing of Him each day, there's, there's more to know. He becomes sweeter, still sweeter every day as we grow in our relationship with Him and in our understanding of who He is and experientially, intimately grow to know Him. What a blessing. What a tremendous blessing. And Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to start. Last week, Brian covered uh, verses 1 to 10 in more detail he did reference the, the latter verses, 11 through the end, verse 20 
2, but not in detail. And when you look at Ephesians chapter 3, you see that Ephesians chapter 2 flows right into Ephesians chapter 3. Of course, it's a letter, right? This, the, a lot of these um, New Testament books are epistles, they're letters. It's one continuous thought. But especially so when you consider some of what chapter 3 is going to talk about this mystery. Well, Paul gives great detail in chapter 2 from 11 to the end. And then in verse 3, he's even going to say, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm explaining to you that as I have briefly written already, the things I've already briefly written from chapter 2. So that's why we're going to start in chapter 2. It's a very continuous thought. This morning was more of an overview, more topical, where I, I, by, I hope by the Spirit of God picked and chose certain thoughts from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, whereas this evening we'll go with more of a verse-by-verse approach to consider the actual uh, text as opposed to just the overview of the flow of thought. Ephesians 2.11 says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. He says, Therefore, remember. Remember. We certainly don't dwell in the past, right? He's going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 3 that we're going to dwell on Christ. And by God's grace, Christ is dwelling in us. But there is a time and a place to remember, isn't there? I mean, this is what Paul says. Remember where you were. Remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. Remember the state that you were in before Christ. And again, in Ephesians, he's going to give the where you were, the what Christ has done, and the where you are now. Oftentimes, when I face difficulties or tribulation, we know that in this world we're going to have tribulation. Oftentimes, when I face tribulation and things seem, seem difficult, I find myself thinking, what would life be like if I didn't know him? Remember where I was before him. Where would I be if not for him? And so again, we don't dwell on the past, in, in that sense, we, we, we don't just sit there and, and, and wallow in it, but there is a remembrance of where we were before Christ in order to appreciate where we are now in Christ. And so he says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. This is a contrast, no doubt, of Gentile and Jew. He's saying the Jews, they had this... Uh, the ceremonial custom that God had given to them of circumcision. He says, you were the uncircumcision. You get an idea when David says regarding Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? The idea is just that he's not a Jew. Who is this one who dares to stand in the face of God's people and God himself? And so for most of us here today, I believe that's where we were. We were, would be considered the uncircumcised. We weren't, obviously, of the nation of Israel. He says that at that time, you were without Christ. Listen to this description. What a synopsis of where we were. And again, I just reiterate, we don't dwell on it. We're not going to wallow in it in, in any kind of self-pity. But in order to appreciate what Christ has done, Again, sometimes we may face tribulations and, and struggles and trials. But consider where you would be if you didn't have him. Yes, the Christian life brings certain responsibility and tribulation and trial. But where would you be without him? Don't you look out on a world 
and see the hopelessness. He's going to say that exact thing, the godlessness, the lostness. What a terrible place to be. And that's where we were. He says that at that time, you were without Christ. What a terrible, none but Christ can satisfy, but there was a point in time when I was without Christ. I didn't have the one, the only one who could satisfy. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no legal claim as Gentiles, no legal claim to the, to the promises that God gave to Israel. We had no place with that people. We were aliens to them. We were strangers, foreigners to them. He says, having no hope and without God in the world. We were godless. We were Christless. We were hopeless. That's where we were. What a synopsis of the Gentile people, of those who did not know Christ. It's interesting that in 1 Peter 2, some of you might be thinking of this now, we're called strangers and pilgrims. But it's the exact opposite. Here, we are strangers and pilgrims. We're aliens. We have no legal claim. We have no acceptance. We have no reception. We have no place in the family of God. We have no legal standing in the family of God. We're, we were aliens to, to God and his promises. That's where we were. But when you get to, to 1 Peter chapter 2, it's the very opposite. He says, I beseech you as pilgrims and strangers, now in Christ... We are accepted in the beloved. We are received into the family of God. We have a standing with God. And it's upon the merits of Christ. And now, we are pilgrims and strangers, not to God and His promises, but to this world. We walk as, as pilgrims and strangers. Hebrews 11 is going is to say that as well. Those of faith walked as pilgrims and strangers to this world. This, home is not, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. There was a time where we were strangers, aliens, pilgrims. We had no relationship with the God of heaven. No legal claim to his promises. That's where we were. But, but now, he's going to say that, but now... It's the very opposite. We have standing, we have acceptance, reception to the God of heaven, to his promises, to his covenants, to all the, the wonderful blessings it is to be in him. And it's the very opposite. Now we walk in a world that's not our home. We look forward to a home in heaven. We walk in a world here and now as pilgrims and strangers. You see how it's flip-flopped? What, what it once was, pilgrims and strangers to God, now accepted, received by God and pilgrims and strangers to the world. But the, he says, and that was a little detour going into 1 Peter, that, that wasn't part of the text here. But it's an interesting contrast. He says, you were hopeless, you were godless, you were Christless. But now, but now, what a tremendous transitional phrase. You could no doubt do a whole series of messages on the buts of the New Testament, the but phrases. What a transitional phrase. It's as if to say, this is the story. What a sad story. But the story doesn't end there. There's something more to come. There's something else has happened. There's a but in the story. In Ephesians 2 and verse 4, 
we read of the but God. We've read that multiple times in the Lord's Supper over the last few months. He's going to speak individually at the beginning of Ephesians 2 about where we were, dead in trespasses and sins, but God. The wonderful but the B-U-T phrases of the New Testament. If uh, Titus 3 gives another one. We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the love of God, our Savior, appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ. What tremendous, tremendous transitional truth. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We talked this morning a little bit about reconciliation. We were once afar off from God, but now we've been brought near. Does he say we picked ourselves up and we, we made our way back to God? We, we laced up the boots and we started trucking and we got back to God? Is that how it happened? that we started doing all kind of good works and we really committed our mind to it and we really pressed on and we got back to him? Is that what he says? Not at all. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, you have been brought near. That the Lord Jesus Christ, you didn't do it, brother and sister. I didn't do it. We couldn't do it. There was a distance too big to bridge. There was a gap that was too broad to span. We couldn't do it. But in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. Brought near. We who were once afar off by the blood of Christ. We heard about it a little bit in the prayer this evening, in, in the thoughts this morning. The price that was paid. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. We've been brought near. How? Well, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. By the blood of Christ. That he shed his blood there at Calvary on my behalf, on your behalf, in order to bring us back to God. Redemption, Ephesians 1. Regeneration, the beginning of chapter 2. Reconciliation, later in chapter 2. All because of what Christ has done. Like Dr. Tony Martin said when he was here, right? All the religions of the world, what's the difference between all of them and between biblical Christianity? One word, he said, all the religions of the world do. But biblical Christianity, done. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, all about what God has done through Christ, through the cross, on your behalf, to God's glory. What a blessed, blessed place we're in. Then it says this in verse 14, For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. doesn't say that God has made a peace treaty with man. doesn't say that God has formed political alliance or military alliance or anything like that. But he himself is our peace. I suppose if God could have given a decree in order to bring man back to himself, in order to bring you and I back to life, he would have done so. But it wasn't done that way. It was done by the person 
and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is no peace treaty. This is no uh, 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 alliance, so to speak. But He Himself is our peace. And He says, Who has made both one, that is, Jew and Gentile, brought together in one. Again, this is no alliance. We're not, we're not agreeing to, to, to go on and to work together. We're not agreeing to coexist. But that Jew and Gentile in each of us and all, and all of our differences, some older, some middle-aged, some younger, some from one culture, some from another culture, some with this preference or that preference, and all the things that make us different individuals. And many of those things are, are beautiful differences. We love to have a diverse family of God. But that He has taken two different people, Jew and Gentile, and made them both one. What a tremendous, tremendous work. It says, He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. There was a wall in a sense, not a literal wall, but there was a wall that was established by God himself with the Jewish people. The Israelites had a, had a purpose. Their grand purpose was to bring in the Messiah. And so God created a wall. There was the law of commandments, the ceremonial things, all these things that made Israel so different from the rest of the world. They had their way of dress. They had their way of worship. They had their way of of, of eating, they had their dietary laws and all these different things. There was a wall in that sense between them and the rest of the world. Again, two people groups, Jew and then all the rest of the world, Gentile. But it says that he has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. It's as if God started back at the beginning there with uh, a, a broad picture, the seed of the woman, right? And then through time, that, that broad picture became more narrow. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Judah and the seed of David and so forth and so on. Until finally, Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It all came together into one man, the man Christ Jesus. But then the very opposite was done as things began to spread back out. Started in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. To where God could have for himself, for the Lord Jesus, a body of believers, diverse from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, but made one in Christ. Do you see why we need this doctrinal truth? He still hasn't told us anything to do. I might have hinted at some things that we ought to do in our unity together, but he still hasn't said anything about what you and I are to do. This is all what Christ has already done. Do you see why we need this? We need this doctrine. We need an understanding, a growing in the knowing of these things in order to be able to live out the unity of chapter 4 and the things to follow that, all of those commands. We need an understanding of what God has already done. He's already made from all of us, and Jew and Gentile, one new man, he's going to say. One body. What a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. 
having abolished in his flesh, verse 15, the enmity, that is the law of commandments and ordin- contained in ordinance, ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Do you look out on a world that is at peace? Are they even, certainly they don't have peace with God. Are they even at peace with one another? I don't look out on a world that's at peace with one another. The only thing that seems to unite the world is their hatred for one another. The only thing that seems to bring people together is like when we're at war with someone else. We can find some kind of unity in our hatred or in our uh, attack towards someone else. But there's no true unity. There's no true peace between the, the world, the people of the world. Certainly they have no peace with God and they have no peace with one another. I look in my workplace and I see backbiting. I see gossip. I see all kinds of terrible things. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, in God's plan of salvation, this is all part of God's big plan of salvation. One body in Him. Different people from different cultures, different tribes, tongues, people, and nations all brought together in one body. What a tremendous, tremendous truth. Thus making peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. There was an intense enmity between Jew and Gentile. I mean, you look at what the Jews, the Israelites, thought of the Gentiles, even some of the Jewish Christians in the book of Acts who didn't really understand that the Gentiles were going to be brought in, there was an intense and very deep division between Jew and Gentile. And I'd encourage you to read it. I went back through Acts just to get a good idea because Paul is going to go into chapter 3 and say he's a prisoner because of these things. There was an intense division between Jew and Gentile. And then you look at history and you look at uh, uh, the anti-Semitic rhetoric of the world, right? I mean, there is an intense hatred for the Jewish people. But in the body of Christ, all that is done away with. All that's gone away with. We have peace with one another. Why? He says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. It's all level ground at the foot of the cross. You've heard that said many times. Isn't that true? When you, when you meditate on the cross, the work that the Lord Jesus did. Our national identities in that sense are gone when it comes to our identity in the body of Christ. We're one body together. Again, do you see why we need this doctrinal truth in order to live it out? As we'll see some of the commands of chapters 4, 5, and 6. What a tremendous accomplishment when you understand the deep divisions the, 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 the intense divisions between Jew and Gentile, but that because of the work of the cross, we, we come together through one means. What is that means? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our access to God. And he says, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's verse 18. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We, we join together. We've all been put on level ground at the foot of the cross. None of us got to God because of our good works. None of us got to God because we were wise. None of us got to God because of our stature 
or our strength or our abilities or any of that. We all came through humbly receiving, Lord, there is nothing I can possibly do. Only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, only through the cross can I possibly be brought brought back to God. And now we sit together in one spirit. By one spirit we have access to the Father. Access to the Father. What a tremendous privilege to know God as Father, isn't it? Tremendous privilege. The Lord Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, the world will get their opportunity to, in a sense, come to God, but they'll come to Him as judge. But for you and I, who know the Lord Jesus, who have come to that place at the foot of the cross, we come to Him, we have access to Him, and it's going to repeat that in chapter 3, by one Spirit, because of what Christ has done on our behalf to know Him as Father. Isn't that a tremendous privilege? to have a heavenly Father who looks out for us. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but this is, remember, where you were. Verses 11 and 12. What Christ has done, verses 13, 14 through 18. And now where you are, verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't it a tremendous privilege to be part of the household of God? Isn't it a tremendous privilege to have unity with one another because of what Christ has done on our behalf? He says, having been built... There's much more that could be said, by the way, but this is a rather lengthy passage. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation. They themselves weren't the foundation. He he doesn't make that distinction. But when it comes to Christ, he says, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. So the teachings of the apostles and prophets were in a sense the foundation. But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, he himself is the foundation. It was their teaching about Christ that was the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. One has aptly pointed out the fact that all of the pictures of the church in the New Testament are utterly futile without Christ. What is a body without a head? What is a bride without a bridegroom? I mean, wouldn't that be a sad day for a bride to arrive and no bridegroom to be found? What are branches without a vine? What is a building without a foundation? The Lord Jesus Christ, in that sense, holds it all together. He is the head of the church. He is the bridegroom. He is the vine to which we are uh, implanted. He is the foundation upon which we're built. It says, "In in whom, verse 21, the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There was once an Old Testament temple... But now the church of God holds this special place as the temple of the Lord. What a tremendous thought. You know, the Lord Jesus, 
we know that, that the Spirit of God dwells in each individual believer, right? That's clear from the New Testament scriptures. But there's a unique way, he says in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's a unique way in which the church of God is the temple of God. We are individually, we know that. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying you also are being built together. There's a unique way in which the body of Christ is the temple of God, the the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's what he says. Now, we'll go through just a few thoughts from Ephesians chapter 3. This was really the assigned text, but it sure rolls right into, uh, or flows right out from, I should say, these thoughts from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. God has taken Jew and Gentile by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the cross and made them together as one body. Okay, that would be a summary statement. God has taken Jew and Gentile and every other people group for that matter and taken them in the work of the Lord through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and placed them together in one body. And so Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. It is believed and obviously stated that Paul was a prisoner at this point, a prisoner in Rome. If you read Acts 22, it is so powerful to read the account of the Apostle Paul and his presentation to the Jewish believers. He goes through his testimony And he's explaining to them all that God has done to transform him personally. And there, the Jews are there listening as he goes on. He says, uh, he says that the Lord Jesus said to him after he had been converted, he himself, he says, and you can just listen. The Lord Jesus said, uh, uh, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. I mean, this was Paul, the Jew of Jews, right? Why wouldn't God use him to the Jewish people? But Paul says that the Lord said this to him, get out of Jerusalem, they're not going to receive your testimony. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. Every time we read of Paul, like in Romans 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that just blow us away? This one who was diametrically opposed to the gospel, diametrically opposed to the Christ of the gospel. He says, he's telling them, he says, Lord, they know in every synagogue, I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. That was my occupation. As Jabe Nicholson says, the great antagonist of the gospel transformed into the great protagonist of the gospel. He says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he says, He said to me, the Lord said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And listen to what it says. And they listened to him until this word. This is Acts twenty-two, twenty-two, And then... The crowd goes wild and not in a good way. They raised their voices. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He is not even fit to live. 
And as they cried, they tore their clothes, they threw dust in the sky. When he got to that word Gentiles, they said, enough is enough. Get this guy out of here. This is blasphemy. And so Paul says in Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. This revelation to Paul was a matter of the grace of God. It wasn't because he was strong. It wasn't because of his stature. It wasn't because of his wisdom. It was simply by the grace of God. Ephesians 3, 2. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. Paul is saying, God gave me direct revelation. This is not something I conjured up. This is not something that I formulated. I didn't put the pieces together, folks. God gave it to me, the revelation of God. How that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery. As I have briefly written already, which we just considered in chapter 2, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. How are we going to come to know the the mystery, understand the knowledge that Paul was given? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul's just saying, brothers and sisters, I'm writing down exactly what the Lord gave to me. And my prayer is that when you read it, you'll come to understand the mystery that God has given to me. I would love to go to 1 Corinthians 2, and I had intentions to, because it is so closely linked to this. Paul says, I didn't come with wisdom of words, folks. I I didn't come to you with wisdom of words. I didn't come of my own accord. It was simply by the Spirit of God, the revelation of God. This is exactly what he gave to me. This is how I came to you. And then he quotes a verse. He says, I has not seen. You know, next time someone tells you that they're going out into the woods to find themselves or, or to find their purpose, remind them of this verse. I has not seen. Then he says, ear has not heard. The next time someone tells you, you know, and you got all kind of, of crazy folks out there sit and listen to the voices and all kind of things like that. Sorry. The ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. This is from 1 Corinthians 2. The next time someone tells you to sit and hum and meditate and wait for some kind of revelation, I'm sorry. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. This is, and he goes on to say, but how was it done? By the revelation of God, that God revealed to him this truth. And now, when you read, you may understand. When I read, and we've considered this morning, it's not just a casual read, brothers and sisters, but that we would meditate on the Word of God, that the Spirit of God might speak in our hearts. This is something, he says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Brothers and sisters, that is the definition of a New Testament mystery. This is something which in other ages was not made known 
to the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. It sounds as if Paul was not the only one that had this revelation, but that this was a mystery revealed. So that's the general definition of a mystery. Now, what was the specific mystery? Well, we already considered it in chapter 2, but he tells us again in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The Gentiles will now be fellow heirs. We have a future inheritance. Praise God for that. We have a future hope. We talked about it this morning. Jesus is coming again. We have something waiting for us. I believe it's First Peter 1 speaks in the first few verses about the inheritance that we have in him. What a tremendous blessing. We are fellow heirs. We have a future hope. Not only that, we're of the same body. We have a present occupation. You're a body part, brother and sister. I'm a body part. We have a present occupation, a present purpose. We are of the same body, and we are partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. We have a future hope. We're fellow heirs. We have a present occupation. We're body parts, and we have a past partaking and the promises. And no doubt we continue to partake in the promises of the gospel. What a tremendous place to be. This is the mystery that God had revealed to him. That the Gentiles would be fellow heirs, would be of one body with the Jews, the body of Christ. What a tremendous accomplishment that God has done. We'll just finish a couple of thoughts here and then we'll close. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul says, This was not of me, brothers and sisters. This was a gift. I can't boast in a gift. Can you boast in a gift? This was the gift of the grace of God given to me by my own knowledge. No, no, no. By the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Every spirit-filled believer, brother and sister will end up at this place. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, if you sit and you meditate, for you personally, and I do, on the salvation of God and allow the Spirit of God to work in the inner man, you can't help but end up in this place. To me, who am the less of the least of the saints. I was, Jamel and I were talking, you know, last year the kids came up here and they sang a song you know, I want, to be, I want to be like my daddy. And Jamel and I both had the same feeling. No, you don't. don't I don't want you to be like me. I, I'm, I'm the least of the saints. I don't, but, of course, the song concluded and we understood that the reference was to, uh, the ultimate reference was to God the Father. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches, treasures, generally speaking, they're rare. Otherwise, they wouldn't be treasures. But when it comes to the riches of Christ, they're unsearchable. Oftentimes, when you get down and you meditate on the Word of God, you feel like a, a thimble dipped in the ocean. Like you're filled up, but you know there's so much more. The unsearchable riches of Christ. It's tremendous. And we'll close with these thoughts. There are some tremendous things in the prayer um, that we won't get to, but I want to close with these thoughts. He says, To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God, 
who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul's again just reiterating, and I'm just restating what he's saying. My intent is to pass this mystery by writing and to pass it by preaching. I'm writing it down. I'm preaching it to you. My prayer is that you will see what is the fellowship or the administration of the mystery, how this is going to work out. That's what he's saying. And then this is the purpose. And this is tremendous. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. William MacDonald says, get the picture here. It's as if this is a classroom setting. God is the teacher. The universe is the classroom. The angelic hosts are the students. The lesson today is on the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God. And you know what the object lesson is? The church. It's you and I. That God could take... Imagine what the angelic realm... They look down on this people. Adam, where are you? We were running from God. We didn't want anything to do with Him. We were helpless and hopeless without God, without Christ. Strangers and aliens and on and on and on. And God has taken this people, you and I, who once were hiding from Him, transformed us into... Children of God, heirs and joint heirs with Christ, we who were once at enmity with God, we had no peace with God, and now we have peace with God. We came here tonight seeking Him. We have a love relationship where we can seek Him out, where we want to know Him. We're no longer hiding from Him. Imagine the angelic realm looking down and saying, Wow! God, how did you do this? And I, excuse me, I'm not being uh, 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 condescending in any way, but just imagine, oh God, how did you do this? The multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God. We who were once enemies with God now sit at peace with God. We who bit and fought and hated each other, we couldn't find anything to get along with each other on, and now we sit as one body in Christ. The angelic realm, in that sense, the students, and of course you and I have the opportunity to take that in as well. They behold the manifold wisdom of God by the church, by you and I, and all that God has done in us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross, He still hasn't said anything that you and I have done. Not a thing. Just simple faith in Him. That's the only thing that we've done in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It's been all of what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross, and what God continues to do by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, in the inner man of each and every believer, according to the eternal purpose. What a purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm just going to skip down, and I hate to skip these verses, but Thomas Wheeler actually went through, if you didn't get to hear it, a verse by verse on... 14 through the end of the chapter. Now unto him, in verse 20, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We still haven't done anything, brothers and sisters. He is able 
and he's a, what a good God and gracious God. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. And again, it's a matter of the inner man, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's done it all. He gets all the glory. Isn't that true? What a tremendous, tremendous passage. I encourage you, dig into it. Allow the Spirit of God. Meditate on it. As Ron mentioned, this detested word, he said regurgitate last week in the meeting. Could you believe that Ron Ward said regurgitate in the meeting? Well, he did. But that's the idea. Meditate on it, brothers and sisters. Regurgitate the truth of the Word of God. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. What a tremendous blessing. It's the only way we can walk and live out the Christian life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. What a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Thank you for all of this tremendous positional truth we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize, O God, that when it comes to our salvation, we have done essentially nothing. You've done it all. You've done all the work on our behalf, and all we had to do was just yield to you, just receive and repent. What a tremendous Tremendous blessing. All the truth of what you've done for us and who you are. Tremendous. Oh, Lord, help us as we look into your word and we continue to study out this book that we not only would understand and come to know, but we would live it out in a practical way. And help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.